Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. Philip Slayton used to be a lawyer and he used to be a law professor, but for the last 20 years or so, he's been a writer. I've been reading his work for almost that entire time. I've always found him to be insightful, witty, a little bit unpredictable, mostly just a pleasure to read. A few months ago, he started a substack called The End Game. It seemed like an ill omen. Maybe something had happened in his life. Maybe he needed to get things off his chest as he saw a final door closing. But as usual, I should have known better than to think that Phillips Layton would write anything as conventional as a dour, pessimistic take on what's going on with the world. In this conversation, we talk about the end game, the eight books he's written, what he's looking forward to writing in the future, and whether I was right or wrong to think that grim tidings were foretold by the end game. This is his story. All right, Philip Slayton, welcome. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you. So, if we could start perhaps at the end or with the end game. So, a few months ago, you started a new Substack publication entitled The End Game. Uh, I'm just going to read from the the first paragraph of that initial publication. This newsletter, published every now and then, looks at a wide variety of issues and events through the prism of the endgame. Zugzwang is a particularly important aspect of the endgame. Zugzwang exists when a player's only available move is one which will worsen his position. Now, I'm somebody who has followed your writing for 20 years now, so I was interested when you started a substack. I subscribed immediately, and when I read that, I was like, Jesus, this is morose. So what <laughs> happened? <laughs> it's, not, it's not gross, but it's just realistic. Just realistic. Okay. Is there? Can we draw a distinction between those two assessments? Well, I think, yes, I think you certainly can. I mean, they mean somewhat different things, but there may be some overlap between the two ideas. Okay. And so what are you, I, I mean, the stories that you tell on the end game, I think are fascinating. What's the sort of message that you're trying to get across in, in those stories? Well, I'm not sure, Bob, there's any particular message or any particular mission that I'm on. I started this Substack thing more or less on a whim. I have two or th three friends who do it with varying degrees of success. And they said, well, why don't you do it? So I thought, what the hell? Why not? But I didn't want to just have, you know, random thoughts this morning of Philip Slayton. A lot of Substack are like that. This is what I'm thinking about now, you know, after my third cup of coffee, so I'll just pour it all out and you can read it if you want. I didn't want to do that. I wanted something more artful, uh, something more uh, coherent, something that had some kind of idea behind it. And the idea of the end game, which is, you know, I'm sure is a primarily or originally a chess concept, as is Zagzwang, appealed to me as a, as a as a way of looking at things and it has all and I've been surprised since I started doing it the utility of the concept how many things you can look at using those that set of ideas as you'll see I'm thinking there's 14 or 15 of them now mm -hmm. they cover quite a wide range of topics everywhere from you know the world cup FIFA world cup to the sinking of a South American aircraft carrier you name it right and actually I mean one of the things that I find fascinating about your work there is there is this 
maybe glimmer of hope is the wrong word, but this sense of purpose, which I think you can derive from the concept. So I'm going to, I'm going to quote from another one of your entries in my 2020 book, nothing left to lose an impolite report on the state of freedom in Canada. I asked quote, how much freedom will we have when fires sweep across our country? The seas rise relentlessly. The animals die and the beauty of nature is gone. End quote. In the three years since I wrote that little has been done and the catastrophe has compounded. There is more wreckage than ever. Swim for shore. Swim for your life. So again, we sort of start with something which seems a little depressing. <laughs> but those last two lines, the swim for shore, swim for your life. I, I find something in there that you can actually kind of grab onto. It, it's actually kind of a call to action more than anything else. The end game. Is that a fair characterization? It's yes, it's fair. I think it may overly emphasize the action part of the, okay. of the the ideas. I mean, I think there are a lot of important things in life, a lot of important battles in life that must be fought but can never be won. Hmm. I mean, I've been talking about this recently in connection with my new book. So, for example, the struggle against anti-Semitism, the struggle against conspiracy theorists, the struggle against people who misinterpret, misapply the concept of freedom in a very dangerous way. Those are battles that must be fought, but as I say, can never be won. But that doesn't mean you don't fight them because you can't win. You have to, to maintain some kind of equilibrium in society that enables us all to live in a relatively decent way. So it's something like that, Paul. Okay. So there's virtue in the striving, if if we might characterize well, it that I, way. You know, when it comes to important things, I mean, you've just been reading about from something I wrote about climate change, when it comes to important things, there's no easy answer. There's mm -hmm. no certainty of success. It's not even clear what success is exactly in some of these contexts. Uh, it would be easy to look at these problems and just say, give up, say it's hopeless, nothing can be done. Particularly if you take into account, you know, for example, concepts like the tragedy of the commons, so the idea that pe individual people say, there's no sense my doing anything. I'm just one person. I can't change anything. So I might as well just do what I want. So all these ideas, I think, are what I try and stress is, despite all of that, we must continue on. We must continue the struggle. We must continue to live as best we can, despite all of that. And that is a lot. So, so oddly enough, then the end game is actually a rallying cry against nihilism. And I think you overemphasize the idea a little bit when you call it a rallying cry. Okay. <laughs> says, says, you know, You're not leading platoons anywhere. Got it. Know, Leading a platoon, I think it says that nihilism, you know, it's not such a good thing. And it's, gotcha. it's nihilism in its very nature is it's not going to get us anywhere that we would like to be. Got it. Okay. So, I mean, in your writing career, you've you focused on quite a number of different topics and, and wrestled with a, a number of issues. So maybe if we could take a step back and just describe sort of your career and your writing career in particular. I mean, I, I have to say, as somebody, again, who has who has read your work for, for quite a long time now, I've always sort of admired your career from afar. It, it struck me that the narrative arc of your life, if I could be a little melodramatic for a moment, was a, was one that I, I found interesting and worthwhile. You grew up in Canada. You were a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford. You became a legal academic. You were the dean of law at Western University. You then became a practicing lawyer, and and were you were a partner on Bay Street. And then you retired from the practice of law and became a writer. Have I 
described that correctly? Yes, yes, you have. Okay. And so once you were done practicing law, why writing? Like, why did you become a writer? Well, I've always kind of had a desire to be a writer. I like the English language. I like language in general. I like the creative act of writing. I've done it in various ways at various points in my life. I mean, when I was an academic, for example, I did the thing that academics are supposed to do, which is write academic pieces, which generally speaking are by me and other people are badly written and of little interest to anybody. But that's the name of the game. So I've always been liked to write. I've always liked to put pen to paper or now tap on the keyboard of the computer. And so when I decided that I was through with legal practice for a variety of reasons, I thought, well, what am I going to do now? I was only 55 years old. I don't play golf. So I had to think of something to do. So I thought, well, now is the time perhaps to give this. Became my book, Lawyers Gone Bad. So that was a book that I had in mind. So I said, okay, I'm going to sit down and write this book and see what happens. And so I wrote that book, which I'm quite proud of, in my first non-academic book. And I enjoyed the experience. And the book was successful. I'm not sure how you measure success of a book, but it certainly sold quite a lot of copies. And so I just kept on going. And as you say, I covered, I've covered a pretty eclectic ground. I've even read a, written a book about tennis. So, it's, so I just kind of got in the groove. I like writing. Uh, and as I said at, my, at the launch of my new book, which was just this past Sunday, when I made a few remarks to the people who were there, I said, you know, here's the thing about this book. I enjoyed writing it. I enjoyed doing it. And I learned a lot. And that's enough. Anything else is just <laughs> icing on the cake. Okay. Now, my publisher was standing there. I don't think he particularly agreed with those remarks because it's the icing on the cake that he's, he's interested in. But I just think the act, the creative act, in my case, the creative act of writing is in and of itself enjoyable and fulfilling. As I'm sure you know, there's nothing more satisfying than if you type a sentence and you look at it and you say, yeah, that's right. That's what I want to say. And I don't think, I think it's said well, possibly even elegantly sometimes. That's nice if you can get that. But it's a very satisfying thing to do. There's only one drawback to it, Bob, and that is compared to the practice of Bay Street Law, which I know you do, you can't make any money at it. <laughs> <laughs> Five or six writers in Canada who make you know a, a living that enables them to live somewhere other than their parents' basement. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. So one thing that always struck me as curious about your career was the sequencing of it in the sense that you... Uh, started off as an academic, then became a practitioner. Yes. Was that how did that unfold? Because I think more often, uh, maybe not so much these days, where you know the reality is that in order to become a, a full time academic in Canada, you need a PhD. But I think more often the case was people would spend a little bit of time practicing and then transition into academia. Well, I always had academic inclinations. Um, I mean, I had an academic. Uh, bent an academic way of looking at things. I wanted to be an academic. I started my academic career at McGill. Mm. I met the McGill Law School and moved to Weston. But as often happens for a variety of reasons, as time went by, I became less and less attracted to the academic life. And then whatever attraction it held for me was pretty much uh, destroyed by my stint as the Dean of the Western Law School. Being a Dean of a law school, certainly in those days, uh, was not a very, to put it mildly, enjoyable job. Huh. So I decided that something else, I am after all a lawyer, I better do it as soon as I can, because you know I'm getting close to 40. That's a 
quite an advanced age to start a career as a practicing lawyer. So right. I kind of put the word around that I might be interested in doing this, or I was interested in doing this. And Warren Grover uh, of Blake Castles and Graydon, who had himself had an academic background, said, well, why don't you come here? He was a very good lawyer, Warren. He died recently, unfortunately. Uh, so I went to Blake's and I was there for almost 20 years. Wow. The transition then from practice to being a writer, were those books, because you've written eight books at this point, were those books sort of gestating the entire time or or was it just the first book that you had kind of slept on and then the other ones you sort of found your way to them through unpredictable paths? Well, some were predictable and some were not so predictable. Um, the, the first book, Lawyers Gone Bad, was certainly predictable. As you say, I'd slept on it for quite a while. You know, I had things to say that I wanted to say. And in some way, that was also the concluding chapter of my practicing legal career, if you like. It was my saying what I had to say about that and closing that particular door. Although subsequently, I did say some other things in another forai. Uh, the book after that was about the Supreme Court of Canada. And I had been a law clerk to a judge of the Supreme Court of Canada way back when. I had always retained an interest in the Supreme Court and the various kinds of issues it faces. So I thought, and there was no real popular, in fact, not at all a popular book, a book written for a popular general audience about the Supreme Court of Canada. And I thought there should be. So I decided to do that. And then I got interested in municipal government for various reasons and wrote a book, which was unfortunate, misleading, I think, in some ways, titled Mayor's Gone Bad. Although the beauty of that title is every year or two, you can always add another chapter if you want to. Um, so each book, and, and then I won't bore you with the rest, but each book had its own little story behind it. Some were more obvious for me than others. I mean, the tennis book, for example, which was just a bit of a lock, really, that came about because I had a friend, I still have this friend who is a sports photographer, specializing in taking pictures of professional tennis players. And he had some spectacular pictures that I was looking at. And I said, you should do a book with these pictures. These are great pictures. He said, and I said, I'll write the text of it, if you like. Mm -hmm. So that's how that came about. It's a couple of friends doing something together uh, and so on. Every, every book has its own story, Bob. Is there a story behind the novel? Because I find, I think a lot of lawyers, including myself, frankly, imagine themselves to be novelists, or at least to be capable of being novelists. And those who eventually do take the plunge find out that writing a novel is really hard. It's very um, hard. And writing a good novel is even harder. But there are lawyers who have made successfully made that transition. Yes. And in your case, of the eight books, you've written one novel. It was that, did you find the, the process sort of distasteful or how, why, why is the center of gravity in your writing career on the nonfiction side? Well, I think I'm better at it for one thing. I mean, you one likes to do what you're <laughs> good okay. at. <laughs> Not mind you that I'm ashamed of that particular novel, Bay Street. And this may surprise you. It actually did quite well. I think after Lawyers Gone Bad, it's my second best selling book. Mm -hmm. That doesn't surprise me. Um, and then, and this this may surprise you. I'm now writing another one with this basically around the same character, the woman lawyer who features mm -hmm. base. Amazing. And in this book, just to throw out a little teaser, in this book she goes to work uh, as the executive assistant to the Chief Justice of Canada. 
and all kinds of murder and mayhem and God knows what you know, develops from that. For me, it's really just writing these novels is just this is fun. It's just fun. Right. In some ways, as you correctly suggest, it's harder to write fiction than nonfiction because it's, it all comes out of your head, right? right? None of it comes from facts on the ground or what other people have said or what other people have written. It all comes out of your head. I mean, you can't see this, but just to the right of my computer screen, I have a vast number of books that I bought and read in preparation for my book that just came out on anti-Semitism. Well, there's none of that if you write a novel, it just comes out of your head. So that's the easy part and also the hard part. As to everybody thinks they can write a novel, that's true. As Margaret Atwood once said, she's sick and tired of meeting people at parties who are, have other kinds of careers and say, when I have the time, I'm going to write a novel. <laughs> right. Because it's not just a matter of time, fella. It's a matter of talent Indeed. and all kinds of other things. But there you go. I look forward to reading your novel, Bob, when you write it. And that's very <clears throat> generous of you. Yeah, you and me both. You were president of Penn Canada. I'm sure that your tenure in that role informed some of the issues that you talked about in your previous book uh, prior to anti-Semitism, um, which was uh, subtitled An Impolite Report on the State of Freedom in Canada. What did you see as president of Penn Canada or afterwards that that sort of prompted you to write that book? Well, it wasn't my presidency of Penn Canada that prompted me to write that book, but although the first did to some extent inform the second. Um, one, of the, one of the things I very strongly believe in is freedom of expression. And I have my whole life. I mean, I think freedom of expression is one of the essential underpinnings of a liberal democratic societies such as we live in. Uh, I also think it's a concept that is radically misunderstood and has been politically distorted, particularly recently. So I think it's important to keep trying to ex explain or discuss what it is and what, how, why it's important. And of course, freedom of expression is just part of a broader set of freedoms, which I discuss in the book that you mentioned. But there's no doubt that getting back to the pen uh, presidency. There's no doubt that Penn, which is, you know, is a, an international organization of some considerable prestige and stature and history, and with chapters in, I think, well over 100 countries around the world, including, of course, Canada, Penn is, a, is dedicated primarily to freedom of expression. It has the drawback that all these organizations tend to have, which is, you know, the, the NGOs are part of civil society, Sometimes the mission can be murky. The ability to implement the mission or pursue it can be difficult. There's always the question of funding. There's a host of problems that surround what you want to do. But as I said earlier, just because the struggle is hard and it can't be won doesn't mean you, you give, give up on it. So freedom of just, I'm rambling a bit here, but freedom of expression and freedom in general is of great importance to me. The idea is of great importance to me. And as I say, I think increasingly these are concepts that are misunderstood and are used for sometimes nefarious purposes. I mean, often the people who cry out for freedom, freedom of expression and other forms of freedom are the people you have to fear. That might be a nice segue into your, your most recent book, as you mentioned, just published this month, Anti-Semitism, subtitled An Ancient Hatred in the Era of Identity Politics. What 
prompted that book? I mean, anti-Semitism, I think, is a perennial concern and a perennial topic, but maybe I could ask the question slightly differently. Was there an inciting incident which prompted you to write this book at this time? Yes, there was. Hmm. And what it was was a publisher rang me up and said, how would you like to write this book on anti-Semitism? <laughs> I I described this in the preface of the book, and I said, I don't think so, thanks very much. Uh, but then I thought about it. And I thought, well, that might be kind of an interesting thing to write about. Um, and I decided to do it. And I'm very glad I did decide to do it. Because quite apart from the fact that I enjoyed writing it, as I mentioned to you before, I also learned a huge amount in the process of doing it. And I was also able, this is important, I was also able to organize my thoughts around the subject and kind of figure out what I really thought about it, which is one of the, the benefits of writing nonfiction books on difficult subjects. It gives you, the writer, an opportunity to kind of work out what you really think about it and, and to de develop a real understanding of it that you probably didn't have when you began. So that's a big payoff. So anyway, so he said, write this book, and I decided to do it. And I didn't really know what it was going to be. I just didn't know what it was. I was going to say about it. So I started thinking about it and reading a lot about it. And over time, a number of ideas of different kinds emerged that if you read the book, you'll see. Is there a relationship between the challenges that we're seeing around freedom of expression in Canada and more broadly in the West over, let's say, the last generation and what seems to be kind of this recrudescence of, of anti-semitism well it's a very complicated subject to begin with i don't necessarily and i talk about this in the book i don't necessarily completely accept the idea that anti-semitism is dramatically on the increase hmm. you hear that you hear that a lot you hear it from various kinds of well-known Jewish activists, both individuals and organizations. There's something of, and I don't want this to sound derogatory, but there's something of a, almost a, an, an anti-Semitism industry that is always looking for examples of anti-Semitism and demanding things be done to stomp it out or apologies be given and so on. So there's that group. And then politicians often find it convenient to decry anti-Semitism, to talk about it's on the rise and we have to be terribly careful, all the rest of it. Now these cries, these, these cries of alarm are not totally um, wrong, but I think they tend to be very exaggerated. And this is a key point I make in the book. I think often they fail to distinguish between different kinds of anti-Semitic acts or different expressions of anti-Semitism, some of which are unpleasant but not particularly dangerous, and some of which are unpleasant and are extremely dangerous. And I think the concept of proportionate response, a uh, concept we all know, as lawyers at least we all know, is important. You don't treat everything as if it's the same as everything else because it isn't the same as everything else. So that's kind of a rather long-winded way of saying that I think the so-called rise of anti-Semitism, first of all, can be exaggerated. And secondly, the anti-Semitic acts and anti-Semitic expressions shouldn't all be dealt with the same way. Some are important and some are not. Now, for example, this is tangential a little bit, but there's a chapter in my book called Victims or Superheroes. Are Jews victims or are they superheroes? 
And I asked this question. So there are about 14 or 15 million Jews in the world today, of which approximately half of them live in the state of Israel. And Israel, there's lots of things you can say about Israel, but one of the things you have to say about Israel is, is despite everything, and there's a, that's a lot of things, it's phenomenally successful. It has a very vibrant economy. It's a military superpower. From time to time, it kicks the ass militarily of all its Arab neighbors. It is a democracy, although recent events have perhaps put that to some extent in doubt. So the people that live in Israel, the Jews that live in Israel, about 7 million, 6, 7 million, uh, don't seem to be victims. I mean, maybe their history, maybe their grandparents, maybe their great-grandparents and so on were victims, but they don't seem to be victims. Most of the rest of the Jews in the world live in the United States. And you look at who these people are, and they're not all this, but many of them are leading professionals, uh, chair of university departments, presidents of hospitals, Nobel Prize winners, Academy Award winners, prominent in business, etc. All of that, by the way, is one of the things that leads to the conspiracy theories that abound about how Jews run everything. So you look at those people and you say, well, they don't look like victims either. So where does this victim thing come from other than periods of Jewish history, which have been, as we all know, horrible in the extreme. So I guess what I'm trying to say to you, Bob, is that it's, it's murky. I mean, the, there's no clear idea or concept or evil that emerges from history or present circumstances. So you have to look at it carefully. And when it comes to responding, you have to think carefully about how to respond proportionately, rationally, reasonably, and by the way, effectively as well. So try and loop this back into the to where we started with the end game. Um, I think there's a there are some folks who would look at the uh, purported rise in anti-Semitism. The we'll put brackets around the rise in anti-Semitism uh, for the moment until we've read your book. They would look at at the rise in anti-Semitism as one of a sort of suite of phenomena which are occurring and have been occurring over the last, let's say, decade or, or you know, 20 or so years, which have made this a particularly tense, uh, a particularly uh, dangerous period of time. So I have to confess, when I first read and started reading The Endgame, you know, and we're th I'm thinking about things here about, you know, other related or unrelated things like climate change, the rise in political extremism, uh, you know, terrorism, um, economic dislocation, all kinds of excitement, um, artificial intelligence, if we want to throw that in there. So when I first started reading The Endgame, I was thinking, okay, you know, Philip is has sort of looked at all of this, has made an assessment that we are sort of in the denouement of something um, and is going to be speaking to that. Is that right? Are you particularly pessimistic about where we're at as a society? Well, if you ask my wife, she would say, yes, you, I'm too pessimistic. <laughs> I am pessimistic, to be straightforward about it, although I try and resist that to some extent. Because as my wife would be the first to tell you, being pessimistic is not particularly attractive and doesn't make you the life of the party. Uh, but there are things that deeply concern me. So, for example, you, you mentioned the subtitle of the recent book, which refers to identity politics. Identity politics is, I think, a relatively new phenomenon of the past, at the most two decades, maybe less than that. 
uh, and it's connected with all sorts of other things as well. But let's just talk, talk about identity politics. Uh, I, I decry identity politics and its various offshoots and manifestations. Why? Because what I think it does in a very dramatic fashion is emphasize in what respects we are different uh, and ignoring in what respects we are the same. So I note, for example, that Barack Obama, we all remember who he was, when he gave the political speech, which put him on the political map, I think it was the, to the 2004 Democratic Convention, he gave the keynote speech, people said, who, who is this guy? And you may remember, Bob, he said, I'm paraphrasing now, but he said something like, there is no such, there are no such thing as black Americans. There's no such thing as white Americans. There's no such thing as Latino Americans. There are only Americans. Well, that was less than 20 years ago, but it sounds in the context of modern day politics and modern identity politics as, as medieval. And then of course, there's the famous Martin Luther King speech in 1963 from the Lincoln Memorial, the famous I have a dream speech, probably the most famous speech or one of the most famous speech in American political history. And you may remember what he said, often misused, I think. He said something like, again, I'm paraphrasing, that he hopes that his grandchildren will be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And so these great political statements and things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which I think was 1949, all sought to say, well, despite our differences, there are important things that we share, the important things we have in common that, are, that we need to pursue and protect. That seems to have gone by the board now. Increasingly, you have smaller and smaller groups determined to avenge injustices of the past and God knows what else. I write about this in the book, who are very suspicious of other groups who claim that they cannot be understood by anybody else because you have to have lived the experience in order to understand it, and so on. And connected to that are things like cultural appropriation and all that stuff. I see this as extremely retrograde uh, and leading us down a path that I don't, I don't want to go down. Now, I understand, of course, that there is some historical justification and some ethical justification for identity groups feeling aggrieved feeling that they need some kind of redress and so on. I understand that and I'm not denying that one little bit, but the general powerful identity politics movement, you know, the steamroller coming down the road and crashing all within its path, I think is extremely unfortunate. And getting back to your original question, yes, makes me pessimistic. Yeah, it seems there's a real danger there. We seem to be in a, in a moment of real atomization and kind of balkanization, if I can, I don't know if that's the right term to describe it. I mean, one thing which gives me a little bit of hope, I think, is writing at least presupposes that the, that universalism is at least possible, right? In the sense that we're we're trying to speak to an audience um, and presupposing that they're, they are a, a receptive audience. And so we'll probably sort of turn the corner here. I, I know you have other commitments. I, I know that I sort of started by kind of emphasizing the negative is the wrong term, but the the sort of maybe downcast components of the end game. But but one thing I did want to end on is, and I'm, I'm drawing here from from the third installment of the end game, and you were talking about how to craft a good ending, how to finish well. Um, and I loved the way that you ended that third installment when you wrote the following, write your own story 
right to the end. Do that and you'll finish well. What's next for you in terms of writing your own story? Well, that's a question I often think about. I mean, I'm almost 80 years old now, fortunately in good health. And I think what I plan to do is just continue writing books until I can't do it anymore because that's what I'd like to do. I mean, there are probably other things I could find that I would like to do, but I know I like to do that. And here's an also very important thing. I've got much better at it as time goes by. Writing is like, is a craft. Uh, it's something like playing the piano that needs a lot of practice. You get better the more practice you have. And I think some may disagree, but I think that I'm a much better writer now in terms of the craft of writing than I was 20 years ago. So I'm sort of good at it now. And I want to keep doing it because I like doing it because I'm good at it and there are things I have to say. So when I finish this novel that I'm working on now, which will be sometime later this year, my plan is to write a book about charity because I have some thoughts about charity that I think are uh, surprising perhaps and unusual uh, and could be important. Both small charity, you know, giving spare change to somebody on the corner and big charity, the way big philanthropic foundations operate. So I have things to say, and I know how to say them. And so I, I will keep doing that until I can't do it anymore. Amazing. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Where can people find you if they want to know more about the end game and they want to know more about uh, your most recent book, Anti-Semitism? Uh, well, I'm always happy to talk to people. I mean, my e I'll just give you my email, philipslayton, all one word, at gmail.com. I, I urge people to buy the book because my publisher would not would be very unhappy if I didn't. Yes, I urge them to do that as well. I'll put links to to your website, uh, to the end game, and to the the current book in the show notes. And and Phil, thank you so much for taking the okay. time to do this. This was a real pleasure. One, one thing, Bob, though, before you go, yeah, I want to turn the tables on you a little bit. Okay. <laughs> I, I I know you are a practicing lawyer. Yeah. Uh, so why are you doing this? Why am I doing this? Um, I like talking to people. Um, I, I like the craft of interviewing people. I always thought that that was something that was a really interesting undertaking. There used to be a magazine, maybe it's still around, there used to be a magazine called Interview. And I, I used to really enjoy reading that because it was sort of committed to the notion that any individual... They didn't have to be a celebrity. They didn't have to be, you know, a powerful politician. They didn't have to be somebody who, you know, was getting headlines. Any individual had a, a story that was worth telling. Um, and I wanted to be the person that was going to hear those stories and then provide a platform for those. So I, I have tried writing. Um, I have discovered that it is just really not the thing I'm equipped to do. Uh, I lack the sort of perseverance and the stick to that good writing requires. Uh, but podcasting, you know, I get to have fun conversations with interesting people for half an hour, 45 minutes. That, uh, that I'm equipped to do. <laughs> You're equipped to do it very well, I might say. Oh, well, that's very kind of you. Thanks very much. I enjoyed this. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to 
bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.